Hello, and welcome to Unknown Worlds of the Merrill Collection. I'm your host, Oliver Brackenbury. The Merrill Collection of science fiction, speculation, and fantasy is the Western Hemisphere's largest publicly accessible archive of genre materials. Each week, we explore a different world of genre fiction in conversation with a special guest. Today we'll be speaking about haunted house stories with Canadian horror writer, journalist, and film critic Gemma Files. Gemma has won the International Horror Guild Award for Best Short Story, had her work adapted for television, and has generally written her fair share of excellent spooky tales, including the wonderfully Canadian horror novel Experimental Film. And here we are with Gemma Files. Hello! Hi, how you doing? Great, especially now that we're here chatting with you. I've been really looking forward to our conversation about the wacky world, wacky, of haunted houses <laughs> and haunted house literature. But first, if I understand correctly, you do have some history and familiarity with our beloved Merrill Collection. Would you mind sharing with listeners what yeah. that is? Yeah, well, I was not born in Toronto, but I was raised in Toronto. So I've known about the Spaced Out Library, as it was formerly known since at least probably the age of 10 or 11. And by the time I was in middle school, we were allowed to sign ourselves out to go on uh, field trips, as long as we told people where we were going. And the first place I went was the Spaced Out Library, and then I lied about where I was going after that and just went back there again and again and read my way through the Tanith Lee collection. Would you mind sharing with us? What is the first haunted house story that you remember really getting its hooks in you? The Red Lodge by H.R. Wakefield. Okay, uh, and for those who aren't familiar with it, uh, would you mind giving us the gist? Okay, so... <laughs> <laughs> Whatever Wake you can remember is good. <laughs> Wakefield is an interesting guy because if you read your way through his entire roster of fiction, you will notice that he is an extreme misogynist, which eventually makes a bunch of his stuff really difficult to read. The Red Lodge is the least misogynist thing that he's ever written. And basically it's about a guy who's an artist and he and his wife and his young son have decided to take a house for the summer in the English countryside. And they move down, I think about two weeks before he does because he's finishing something up and then he rejoins them. And the house is right next to a river and the minute that he gets there, he's sort of like, oh, what a lovely place. And then he walks in and he's like, everything seems so dark. And I'm not sure why, because there are so many nice windows and the sun's so bright outside. But inside, it just seems a little dark. And oh, what's this thing on the floor that I just stepped in? A bit of soaking slime. I wonder where that came from. Oh, the river, probably, because my son, I'm sure, goes down and messes around in boats and stuff like that. But it very quickly turns out that no, his son does not go down to the river because the minute that he ran down to the river the first week, he came back up almost immediately crying. And his mom was like, what's wrong? And he's like, I don't like it. <laughs> so he just avoids the river from then on. Okay, so to cut a long story short, there is a history of people taking the house and then a couple of months later, they drown themselves in the river. And in fact, there is a nice neighbor who lives nearby who's sort of like, I can't believe that guy rented the house again. 
I really think that the man who owns the house should be charged with murder because this has happened over and over and over again. And our hero is like, what are you talking about? So he tells the terrible backstory of the, you know, and he comes back having phoned his wife and said, we should probably leave. In fact, pack up right now. We're going to leave the minute I get back and comes back to discover that his wife is already down the bottom of the, uh, the lawn going, Robbie, Robbie, because his kid has like run down to the river and jumped into the river because he claims that a thing that he calls a horrible green sodden monkey has been chasing him around. Luckily, our hero manages to get his kid out of the river and then they get in the car and they drive away. And as far as he knows, the Red Lodge is still being rented, even though only its permanent occupants should really you know that reminds me i was reading about how um if a house is considered haunted that can knock like 15 to 20 percent off yeah. <laughs> on like the cost of rental or purchase and i'm just wondering if the red in, launch uh, have, uh... in japan there is in tokyo definitely a thing where you can intentionally rent a property that is supposedly haunted because it's much cheaper you can phone a real estate agent up and go so do you have any um really haunted properties because yeah i'll go there i'm, I'm fine with that how um, many murders at this one uh 10 okay good yeah it doesn't matter <laughs> i'm fine i'm okay i don't know whether anybody's written anything about that but they absolutely should so that sounds like a great story do you recall maybe the element in the story that kind of made you feel something or was it the whole thing um, in the red lodge the red lodge mounts on you in a beautifully designed way I'm teaching a, a class right now called Write What You Fear. I do it every year. And often I say to my students that people often think that their fears are so huge that they can't be brought across the fears that we all share, like mortality. But the way in is through little things. There's a Richard Kipling line. There was a crack in my head and a bit of the dark world got in. So you have to start small, you know, and a lot of people are like, well, I can't start small because my fears are so specific to me that nobody's going to share them. But the thing is that everyone is afraid of small things because small things will remind them of larger things, but also because the beginning of fear, the beginning of horror is where the known becomes unfamiliar. It's where mm. things begin to go wrong. And that feeling of wrongness, that feeling of creeping wrongness, is how you get people. That note that Wakefield has of, oh, what a beautiful house from the outside, sunlight, and it's so green, and la la la, you know, and he walks into the house, and suddenly the light is muted, it is darker somehow, it hasn't actually gotten less bright but there's a darkness to it and the green has taken on a gaseous kind of decaying quality the quality of slime and thus we see inside of the natural impulse of green that thing of everything growing and blooming and blah 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 the opposite of that is decay and both of those things are inherent in each other and if you can root your work in something that small, then anything that you build on top of it just opens like a corpse flower. <laughs> Have you 
ever or someone perhaps close to you ever had what felt like a haunted house experience? Yeah, actually, when I was younger, I had a couple of things happen. But again, I think when you're a child, your imagination haunts you because you're constantly getting these thoughts that seem to come out of nowhere, which are you imagining, but what if X? What if this happened? By the time you're probably seven or so, you know that things happen at random and often you don't see them coming. By the time I was seven, I'd been hit by a car at least mm -hmm. once. So when stuff like that has happened and stuff like that always happens, it doesn't matter what it is, it's always something. At a certain point, you start to think that anything is possible and your brain starts to grind and the back of your brain is always like thinking, but what if? And then you're shuffling that to the front of your consciousness and you lie awake in bed or you're just about to fall asleep and then suddenly your brain spits up something and you're like, what if a face suddenly came up over the edge of my bed? And I was like, what is that face that just came up over the edge of my bed? Is it going to come closer? Is it going to go away? Is it, you know, what's going to happen? So I think when I look back that probably a lot of the stuff that I thought happened had to do with my brain grinding and throwing up sparks. Yeah, I'm maybe entirely... like um, pattern recognition or that old caveman thing of like, it's better to assume the shadow is a panther than not. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the pattern recognition is a really good way to, to put it because human beings see patterns in everything and we want to see patterns in everything because we want things to be recognizable and controllable, but they aren't. What do you feel is the essence of a haunted house? You know, the characteristics that really make it a place that is not only like a haunted scary place, but also a place a reader would want to visit. The essence of a haunted house is that it has all the qualities that a home has, but it is also unheimlich, unhomelike. Often there's like a point where you go to a haunted place and you are actually very attracted to the haunted place. Or you grew up in the haunted place, so it's difficult for you to process whether or not it's haunted until you see it working on other people. It kind of depends on whether the house wants you or not. When you go back far enough, there's that very gothic sense that a lot of haunted houses are sort of like the physical ghosts of the people who built the houses or first occupied the houses. And often the house stands in for the person. The house becomes sort of literally what is left of the person, the body of the person. It's like a grave. It's like a monument. It's like a rotting, decaying body. It's like a body that's turned into something else. Like if a bramble bush grew out of your grave or a tree grew out of your grave or a copse of trees grew out of your grave. There is that real sense of an animus loci or a genius loci where like a person and a place have become stuck together somehow. Sometimes you build a house in just the wrong place, right? Like it's a thin place. It's an empty there's place. There's a sacred burial ground, you know. Well, you know, not even grounds. that, you know, it's, yeah, it's a place that nobody should live. Mm -hmm. But you built your house there and you did live there and your family lives there. And when people say you have to leave, 
the people who've lived there for so long say, this is mine. I belong to this place and it belongs to me. One of my favorite haunted house narratives is not actually about ghosts. It's called The Elementals by Michael McDowell, probably best known these days as the dude who wrote the screenplay for Beetlejuice. But during the 1980s, he wrote a series of wonderful southern gothic full-bore horror novels. Anyway, so the elementals, they are not people. They have never been people. They mimic the people who occupied the houses sometimes. There are two families. I don't remember what the other one's called, but one of them is called the Sauvages or the Savages. The families have been intermarrying into each other over and over for generations, at least 300 years. They have built three summer houses off the coast of South Carolina on a sand island. This is the kind of island where you can walk to it when the tide is down, and then when the tide goes high, you are cut off. Two of those houses are not livable anymore because the dunes have gotten so high that they have started to engulf the houses. A girl who has never been to the third house is brought there. She's a photographer and she finds the two engulfed houses fascinating. She wants to take as many pictures of them as she possibly can. And she sort of accidentally, semi-accidentally breaks a window and goes into the second house, the one that's only half engulfed. And when she's in there, sees something, something. Mm. And that's how everything sort of begins. I'm not going to spoil it for you because it's amazing. But what I will say is that you have a collision of two things here. You have a collision of like exterior evil, which is the elementals themselves, who have attached themselves specifically to the savages, though the other family, because they orbit around the savages, are also kind of touched by the elementals, particularly when they're down there in the three houses. But it's really hard to say, are the families unlucky because they have elementals attached to them? Or have the elementals become attached to them because they are unlucky and because they suffer and because they've committed sins that they don't even remember committing because this is the South. And he captures this feeling beautifully, which I think comes out of being a white Southern dude <laughs> and a white Southern gay dude. So he's a little more likely to examine these things than other people might be. But this sense that we are not supposed to be here, we are guilty, we have committed terrible things to be here. If you're a rich, white person in the South, then your life is built on a scrim of misery. And so, you know, whatever it is we did, what is happening to us probably has something to do with that. And even if we don't know what it is that we did, we're still guilty. Every haunted house story I've ever encountered, history is an important part of the equation, whether it's the history of the home, the history of the people moving in, the history of the people buried underneath it, or, you know. Yeah, or, or a combination of, of all three. You know, one of the things that I've had to accept, and I'm sure you too, 
as a white person who identifies as a Canadian is that none of us were supposed to be here either. So you could say that Canada is a haunted house. You could say that any colonized country is a haunted mm. house. You can say that any country where a war has occurred is a haunted house. Does a house, real or metaphorical, have to be old to scare us? Like, could you almost imagine like a brand new home that has not been built over a sacred burial ground that is somehow nonetheless... Uh, I, I could imagine a place like that. Let me tell you a story. I had to write a story for an Ellen Datlow anthology called Echoes, which was an anthology of new ghost stories. And I ended up writing a story called The Puppet Motel. The Puppet Motel, like most of the stuff that I write these days, came out of personal experience. I got the opportunity to manage two Airbnbs at the same time. Now, one of these was a place that I called the House of Flowered Sheets, and it was nice. And the other place, which I ended up calling the Puppet Motel because it was spooky like a Laurie Anderson song, was a place that, to be frank, I don't understand why anybody would ever want to stay in, let alone pay money to stay in it, because I didn't want to stay there for more than an hour at a time, and I had to go there every day. And so out of that grew the idea of, so what if I was in that position? And for example, say I lost my place to live halfway through this process, and I had to phone the guy and go, you know, I, I can't do your thing anymore because I, you know, I, I don't have a place to live. And he would be like, oh, you can stay at one of the properties. Oh, but you can't stay at the House of Flower Cheap, but you can stay at the Puppet Motel. <laughs> <laughs> and then everything would come out of that. And I mm. liked the idea, you know, the Puppet Motel was totally new. The other one, I think, had been built a couple of years ago and people had been living there for like, I don't know, four years or something. But the Puppet Motel, on the other hand, was brand new, which, again, amazes me because it was like literally somebody had decided, oh, OK, I'm going to make a place where all the windows are turned inward onto a courtyard where you can see barely any sun. Everything's made of concrete in the courtyard <laughs> and inside the apartments themselves. We're going to have a nice decorating scheme, which is sort of half black and half very charcoal gray, including the bathrooms, which are all black marble. And for some reason, all the lights started popping all the time. I had to replace the lights like every time I came there, basically. Some of the lights didn't work at all and they never worked. And one of the places that it didn't work was in the bathroom. So if you want to go in there and take like a shower or something like that, you'd be doing it in the dark. Well, there you go. Anyway, Brand new property. So, Pretty freaky. <laughs> yeah. There was always a weird tone in there. You'd feel like you were losing time. I would set my uh, alarm on my phone to make sure that, you know, I was out of there within about an hour or two hours at the most. So this is a totally brand new place, but it's weird. And it's weird in that liminal way that new spaces tend to be, new and unoccupied spaces. Now, the thing with a haunted house is often, as you say, that there's history that impacts on it. You know, you live in, in a house that somebody else has lived in, that generations of other people have lived in. But there's something equally weird about living in a place where nobody has lived and nobody really lives there now. 
you come in and occasionally you find detritus from other people, but you don't know those people and they don't know you. Again, it's like the brain starts to, but what if, what if, what if? And a crack begins to form. A crack begins to form and a bit of the dark world gets in. I really find that that two-pronged approach is the best way to do horror for me. The two-pronged approach of why is the house the way it is? Why is the home the way it is? Why is the place the way it is? But how does it interact with you the way you are? Hmm. And how do those things call to each other? And how do those things interact with each other? I love it. Now, I have a copy of your book here, uh, Experimental Film, yeah, uh, which uh, Chris and I both strongly recommend, a listener. And there is a really neat quote that I will read uh, by Caitlin R. Kiernan at the front of the novel, uh, which goes as follows. I need a world filled with wonder, with awe, with awful things. I couldn't exist in a world devoid of marvels, even if the marvels are terrible marvels, even if they frighten me to consider them. I read that quote, and I thought it might be nice to ask you, could you please tell us a bit about why you chose that quote and your thoughts on the awe-inspiring side of hauntings, how as terrifying as they can be, they are kind of wonderful and how they make the world bigger. I love that quote, A, because I love Caitlin. She is a huge influence on me. But also because when I used to tell people that I wrote horror, there is this general feeling like, why do you want to do that? Why would you do that? Why would you deform yourself and hurt yourself by playing around in the horror sandbox, particularly by that being the thing that you want to occupy? And this is because most people have an assumption that horror lives at the intersection of gore and porno streets. Horror is a spectrum. It goes very far in either direction. It crosses back over around and forms a circle. And all of us have all of those things living inside ourselves. And the idea of awfulness is a type of horror which is cosmic or religious. It's a type of horror that is world shattering. And in a lot of ways, it is the part of horror that intersects with the numinous. It's the part of horror that intersects with faith. And again, we return to the essential problem of being human. Is it worse that we don't live forever? Or would it be worse if we lived forever? Is it worse that we die and there's nothing afterwards? Or would it be worse if there is something afterwards? What would that thing be? Would we be able to understand that thing? Would we want to be able to understand that thing? These are things that are inherent to horror and they are inherent to being human. All humans want faith. They want to have some sense of the miraculous. They want to have some sense that the world is organized in a way that even if they can't understand it, they understand why they can't understand it. There are so many laws and rules and impulses and energies in the universe that that stuff doesn't just dissipate and disappear. You know, that there's a point to it all, that it all interacts with everything, interacts with everything else for some purpose, for some reason. 
And maybe we want to think that because we're monkeys who know we're going to die. Or maybe we want to think that because if we didn't think that, we might as well just go home and kill ourselves. That to me is what's inside of that quote. And that to me is what the lure of horror is generally. Mm -hmm. So the lure of a haunting is that if it's real, if there is actually some kind of haunting that's going on, then death is not the end, mm -hmm. which could be great and it could be terrible and it could be great and terrible at the same time, much like Oz. Or conspiracy theories. You know, it would be awful if uh, reptilians at the center of the earth were beaming terrible things into my brain every night, but at least I'd know somebody's in charge. Yes, and at least I'd know why these terrible things come into my mind every night. I mean, seriously, conspiracy theories are the haunting of our age. They are the paranormal of our age. They explain why things happen. Yeah, or even like, you know, with conspiracy theorists, I find it's often, uh, I think, a person's desire as well to feel that they are aware of a sacred truth that others need to be informed Exactly. About. And to yeah. bring it back to haunted houses, perhaps, is yeah, the thing um, of, there uh, is a the, lore to discover. The antiquarian uh, notion, M.R. James is particularly good at this, that if I just go to the library or I go somewhere, I find the right person to talk to. I will figure out what happened that made this place so sour and hungry and weird and untrustworthy. What is the thing that happened? There's something fell from the stars, uh, possibly from another universe. Um, Which is reminding me of my desire to find if it's been written or write, maybe I should be the one to write it or somebody should write it. Um, the story of those plucky librarians at Miskatonic University who have to deal oh, yeah. with Lovecraft's characters <laughs> passing through. I mean, like, hey, can we see that copy of the Necronomicon that's really well thumbed through? Um, yeah. yeah I, I really don't think you should look at that. <laughs> so I'm wondering, are there any infamous or perhaps lesser known haunted sites that you would desperately like to visit? No. Um, <laughs> but I will recommend some books. There's a really wonderful novel by Elizabeth And called Wilding Hall, which is definitely about a haunted house but again what's haunting the house is not necessarily a ghost and yet it's beautifully done because it's basically set during the folk explosion of the 1970s in england and there's a band that's sort of like steel eye span or one of those bands from that era they occupy this house wilding hall in the middle of nowhere and they're gonna do their most recent album together there and one of them disappears the guy who's like the middle of the band that really the glue that holds it all together he disappears and so years and years later people are offering an oral history of what happened at wilding hall it has that beautiful mixture of nostalgia but nostalgia in the old sense of mm. you know not just here is the past but here is our pain here is the yeah. thing that made us and unmade us and the interior mystery is gorgeous. I would also uh, recommend a lot of things by Jonathan Acliffe, who's a guy who, again, did a bunch of books during the early 1990s, probably not very well known. The two that I would uh, particularly recommend to people are The Lost, which is set in a castle in Romania, and The Vanishing, which is set on a clifftop house, I think on the Cornish coast. And both of them are amazing. Uh, Wild Fell by Michael Rowe, which is another incredible Canadian writer. 
who has not written as many things as he should have. It has a huge surprise stuck inside of it. So very much worth your time. Wildfell as a house is built on a little island in northern Ontario. So it's a bit like one of the Thousand Islands, one of those places where, you know, it's like one family owns it and you can get there pretty easy, but it's hard to leave. Mexican Gothic, Sylvia Moreno-Garcia. I've been hearing good things. Incredible things. Yeah. And that's built around a house which was built by an Irish family that came to Mexico. And now they have been there long enough that they are certainly sort of citizens of Mexico, but they still consider themselves to not be Mexican. And their house is in completely non-Mexican style. It also has some structural problems, which make it appear to be haunted, but it's not haunted per se, or is it? The Red Tree by Caitlin R. Kiernan. Caitlin's done just incredible amount of stuff about how things are haunted. But I would say The Red Tree is probably the best of them for me. It's a completely open-ended kind of haunting where it's like, where does this come from? We don't know. Where does it go? We don't know. How can you do something about it? We don't know. See ya. Another open-ended narrative is Little Sister Death by William Gay, which is built around the uh, legend of the Bell Witch. And the main character is a writer, much like William Gay, who uh, decides to occupy the house closest to the ruin of the house where the witch haunting went on so that he can write a book about it. And strangely enough, strange things start to happen to him. (laughs) Uh, The Dwelling by Susie Maloney, again, a Canadian. I'm particularly interested in this one because the house itself is just bad from the beginning, but the haunting manifests very differently for each person who occupies the house. And of course, White is Witching by Helen Oyeyemi, which is about a house made of chalk, built on chalk, and it's racist. It's a racist house, which tends to like you if you're white enough, and if you're not white enough, it eats you. And the haunted house story is also told not only from the point of view, the rotating point of view of the people who occupy the house, but from the point of view of the house itself. I would like to come back to something a little adjacent, I guess, to what we've talked about, because I thought you were getting into some neat stuff earlier about um, Canada as a haunted house. Could we maybe expand beyond haunted houses just a little bit? Would you mind telling us a little bit about being a horror writer in Canada. I mean, experimental film is certainly informed by Canadian history, especially its motion picture heritage. Are there other aspects of Canadiana that you feel lend themselves, especially to horror writing or just something in general that inspires you as a Canadian writer? When I first started to write horror, which was in the 1990s, I had this real sense that most people around the world cannot tell the difference between Americans and Canadians, A. And B, if they can tell the difference between Americans and Canadians, the only thing that they think is that Canadians are the nice version of Americans, Canadians. Yeah, we're the Which, nice ones with health care, yeah. Yeah, we're, we're the nice ones with health care. And that's sort of true for as far as it goes. I will say that what's become more and more obvious is that we're better at pretending we're nice. There's a certain ambivalence about being a Canadian. And it's difficult to persuade people that they're history is worth saving and therefore we tend to forget our history 
And we also tend to forget our history because we want to forget our history. So when I first started to write horror, I struggled a little bit with the idea that you don't want to write something that's set in Canada because A, it's boring, and B, you have to explain too much. Some people who uh, read experimental film have literally left Amazon reviews where it's like, if I wanted to know about the history of Canadian film, and I'm like, it's three pages. <laughs> three pages in a 300-page book. Meanwhile, they've read 100 <laughs> pages of backstory on a mythical fantasy nation in some doorways, you know? Yeah, yeah, you know, it's like... It's like but secondarily, it's a place where really anything could happen because you don't think that anything is likely to happen. And that's how I decided to deal with it. I decided that since I am a Canadian, when I think about a person going down a street somewhere, it's me going down a street in Toronto. Why not proceed from there and have whatever I want to happen, happen? And that was always my way of dealing with it. So uh, a lot of my early stories fall under, I guess, a, a rubric that I would call Toronto Dark, <laughs> where it's like, what if John Constantine but Toronto? <laughs> you know? And I've just kept going like that. I don't see why not. I don't see what the point is of not doing that. I'm amazed by how huge Canada is and how empty Canada is and how little of Canada I have seen or am likely to see. How can you not be inspired by a place like that. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, this has been a wonderful conversation. I'm so happy you gave us your time. Thank you very much, Gemma. Uh, as we tie this off, would you be so kind as to let listeners know where they can find you online? You know, if you have a website, Twitter, that kind of thing. Okay. And uh, do you have anything coming down the pike that you'd like to tell um, them about? What I have right now is a collection of short stories called In That Endlessness, Our End, which is out from Grimscribe Press. And it is, to some degree, my pandemic book, since everything in it was written over like the last five to six years. I like to say it was either pre-Trump or post-Trump. And I have another collection of short stories coming out called Dark is Better from Trepidatio. And I am hard at work on three things, one of which hopefully will be my next book. Very cool. And if people want to find you online, is there anywhere? Uh, or are you, if, uh... if, they want to, if they want to find me online, I'm at Twitter, at Gemma Files. I'm on Facebook as myself and hilariously uncurated, probably on both places. And I have been doing a lot of art. I've been doodling. So I post a lot of stuff like that. Very cool. Well, uh, this has been wonderful. Again, thank you so much, Gemma. Thank you very much. This has been Unknown Worlds of the Merrill Collection, hosted by myself, Oliver Brackenbury, and produced by Chris Dickey as part of the Friends of Merrill. The Friends are an all-volunteer group dedicated to promoting the Merrill Collection through events and projects like this show. Learn more at friendsofmerrill.org. You can also check out the show notes for our social media links and to further explore today's topic. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time in another world.